but the greatest divers of the earth could never fathom all the way the depths that it offers. A child of God, even a gospel preacher who trains in our finest schools, spends a lifetime of study in his personal uh, study in the office, at home, traveling and speaking, reading various books. He will never discover everything that the Bible has to offer any human being. All of us, as we have heard perhaps by this time in your Christian walk, have heard a thousand or many thousand sermons. Some of you may have read through the Bible 50 times or more by this point in your Christian life. And yet every time you read it again, you say, I learned things I never saw before. It's interesting that many of the verses that we memorized in preacher school have been in the back of my mind all these years. I'll pull them out to preach on them and I'll discover something in that verse that I've known the words to for 30 or 40 years, but it was there all the time, but I never saw it before. And I hope that this gospel meeting will serve several purposes, primarily that we will receive someone coming down one of these aisles to confess his or her faith in Jesus, to be baptized for remission of sins. I know you've been working toward that end, praying about that, inviting people to come. Some of you conducting personal Bible studies with those outside of Christ, and that fruit may be born in the preaching of this series. It may be others that we hope will respond who need to make their lives right with God. But in the Gospel meeting, everybody doesn't need to respond. In fact, the majority of those who hear sermons do not need to respond to the invitation publicly. And yet every one of us needs a revival. Every one of us needs Gospel meetings because our, our faith can begin to flicker a little bit. Our fire can die down and just as a fire in a fireplace or a bonfire, you can stoke it again, you can put more wood on it, you can make greater heat come out of it by giving it a little attention. That's why you're here this afternoon when you could be somewhere else. You might even physically rather be at home in your easy chair or taking a nap or somewhere, but you're here because of your interest in your soul. And you know that one of these days you're going to stand before your Maker and you're going to give an account according to the deeds done in your body whether they be good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5.10 And so the third purpose of this Gospel meeting is to build up your faith and knowledge of spiritual things. And every one of us, as we go through these chapters, are going to see things that we've known a long time. But all of us are also going to make discoveries over the next three days. And some of those things are things that may be the tipping point, may be the difference in whether or not we handle a situation correctly, whether or not we bring glory to God in handling a temptation or a certain relationship or a certain incident that may yet be in our future. We need to know what the Word of God says so that we, like Jesus, can say it is written and then give the proper response to the proper situation. So, with that in mind, we go into a study of Tell me something about the Bible that I don't know. In this particular session, we're going to talk about little-known facts of the New Testament. 
Now, we are far more familiar as a whole with the New Testament than we are the Old Testament, but there are still so many discoveries to be made, even among familiar passages. So let's go through a few of these this afternoon. Number one, let's start at the very beginning of the New Testament, the book of Jesus Christ, the Son of David. Jesus is not Jesus' first name and Christ his last name. That is his name, Jesus God with us, Emmanuel, Savior, same as the Old Testament, Joshua. Christ is his office. Like we say, President Obama or President Reagan, President Jefferson or Washington. Well, one is the personal name, one is the title. Christos means the anointed one. In the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed for their office. And Jesus is the only man in the Scriptures who ever occupied all three of those offices. He is a prophet of God. He was a priest. He is a priest of God. Prophet, priest, and now he sits at God's right hand as the king reigning over his kingdom. That's Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. And the word Jesus is found in the New Testament 983 times. There are only 260 chapters in the New Testament. So you see that his name is used more than three times for every chapter in the New Testament. The title Christ is found 571 times, and the phrase, the combination of the two, Jesus Christ, is found 198 times, and Christ Jesus reversed 51 times. It doesn't take a Bible scholar to figure out the most important person in the New Testament is Jesus Christ. And wherever you read, you're reading something about him and about his body, the church. Let's talk about Matthew chapter 8. The only time in the Bible where the Bible ever says that Jesus was asleep is in Matthew 8, 23 to 27. What's interesting about this occasion is that he's been preaching and working and walking and now they're crossing over the Sea of Galilee in a boat and he is asleep in the hinder part of the ship on a pillow. And there comes up this great storm. Now remember, some of these disciples have made their living on the Sea of Galilee before as fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. So they were used to storms. They were used to navigating in rough water. But here, this is some kind of a really tough storm because they are afraid they're going to drown. They're afraid they're going to perish in the waves. And they have to wake him up. I suppose the boat was rocking fiercely, The Bible says that uh, the waves were coming into the boat. It was beating the boat about. And yet Jesus is asleep. Maybe that indicates how physically exhausted he was from giving of himself for others. Maybe it also indicates his emotional stability. You know, some people can't sleep even on a good night. Others sleep. But you know, you put them in a dire circumstance and they're, they're afraid. They're not ready to die. Jesus was emotionally and spiritually confident. Jesus was asleep. But what's interesting is when they do wake him up, you can almost see him waking. Hush! The wind quit blowing. The rain quit falling. The wind ceased to blow. And I suppose if you had looked over the side of the boat, you could have seen your own mirrored image in the calmness of the lake. Now, the Bible doesn't use that word hush, but it could be translated. King James translates it, peace be still. But you could translate it with that single word, hush. As you might quiet 
a, a rowdy or unruly child with the power of your voice so Jesus could quiet the unruly nature with the power of His voice. Jesus stilled the storm. Then we find also the third one. Did you know that merchants in Bible times had sales on merchandise sometimes? Some of you are probably like a, a lot of those in my family. They like to find good bargains when they can. You may look for the you know, Sunday paper, the sales that are going on this week, what's on sale at what place. Well, in the Bible times it says in Matthew 10, 29 that you could buy two sparrows for one farthing. But in Luke 12, verses 6 and 7, it says that you could buy five sparrows for two farthings. So, if you buy twice as many, they throw one in for free. There's a Bible sale. Let's go to the next one. Number four, what might Jesus have eaten? Have you ever thought about the regular life of Jesus while He was here? Now, did, he, did they eat the same kind of foods that we do? Not, mo- not for the most part, although some of the staples are the same. Uh, there are 49 different foods that are mentioned in the Bible. Someone has counted almonds and pistachios. The only nuts mentioned in the Bible, Genesis 43.11, that was when Jacob was sending down some gifts for the Egyptians when they were buying that food to bring back during the drought. Salt is mentioned 12 times in the New Testament, 41 times in the Bible. Pepper is not mentioned at all in the Bible. What might Jesus have eaten? Well, bread is obvious. Matthew 26, 26, they broke bread the night of the last night of Passover that he would eat with them, and then the, as he instituted the Lord's Supper, which we still participate in communion with him and with others. So he ate bread. That's the most common food in history. He would have eaten clean meats as a Jew. He would not have eaten barbecue. He would not have eaten catfish. Those are unclean foods that we are allowed to eat because the Old Testament law was nailed to the cross, no longer bound by it, so we can eat things that they could not. But Jesus would have eaten clean meats, a lamb, for instance, at the Passover meal, Luke 22:15. Jesus also, the Bible says, ate fish in Luke 24, 43 and 44, 42 and 43, it says that they presented him with broiled fish and he did eat before them. And this was post-resurrection. So he's showing that he's not just an apparition or a ghost. He's taking physical material food into his body and consuming it. So Jesus ate fish. Jesus also may have eaten eggs. He once called them good, Luke 11, 12 and 13. The Old Testament says he would eat butter and honey. That could be prophetic, Isaiah 7, 14, but Scripture does specifically say that he ate honey in Luke 24, 42 and 43, which is the passage we just saw. That's an odd combination, eating broiled fish and honey, but it says that he ate those together. Here's the next discovery. I had never thought about this one before preparation for this series. Jesus spoke more than one language. Did you ever give a thought to that? As a Jewish boy, he would have gone to synagogue school. They would have taught him Hebrew. And we find him speaking Hebrew. Luke 2, 39-52, at his bar mitzvah when he was, became a son of the law. At age 12, they took him to Jerusalem. You remember that they left him behind, his parents discovered later that he was missing. They went back for him, found him on the third day. And when they found him, he was discussing with the doctors of the law, 
the laws of God. Well, that would have been in Hebrew. And so Jesus spoke Hebrew. You see it also in Luke 4.16 when He took the scroll in His Nazareth synagogue where He grew up and He found the place where it was written and then He read from Isaiah. So that would have been in Hebrew. John 4, 4-26 spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well. The Samaritan spake Hebrew. So that would have been in Hebrew. Acts 26, 14. Paul specifically said that Jesus, when He spoke to him from heaven, spake in the Hebrew tongue. So Jesus spoke Hebrew. But that's not the only language likely that He spoke. Also, Greek was the common language of the world at the time. Alexander the Great had conquered the world and by doing so had added Greek culture to every other culture. And among the cultural things that had spread was the common language of Greek. Most people could speak their native tongue and also Greek because that was understood by most people if you were going to interact with any of other nations. Most likely you, you would use Greek with them because that was the language more people understood than any other language. You find Jesus conversing with the centurion, a Roman in Matthew 8, 5 through 13. The Romans, of course, would have spoken Greek primarily. They also spoke Latin. John 7, 34. That one's a little more obscure, but most Bible commentators, or at least some Bible commentators, say that since Jesus was, was uh, thought to be going among the Gentiles, when he made a prophecy about a little while you'll see me and then a little while you won't see me, speaking a little cryptically, but he's talking about his resurrection. But those who heard him said, will he also go among the Gentiles? So some commentators think that he was speaking in the language of Greek when he said that, and that was why they thought he was going among the Gentiles. Uh, John 18, 28-38, when Jesus was tried before Pilate, that was a Roman court, so they would have spoken Greek most likely, perhaps Latin, but most likely Greek in that. And then Jesus also spake Aramaic. Uh, that was... Um, the language that had been spoken by many of the Jews. You know, there was proper Hebrew, but then there was the subset of that, the Aramaic. And there are some words that come down to us from Aramaic that are words of Jesus. Matthew 5.18, jot and tittle. Those are Aramaic words. Reka in Matthew 5.22. Mammon, 6.24. Um... Matthew 27, 46 at the cross. Mark 5, 41, Talitha Kumah. Mark 14, 36. All examples of Aramaic words that Jesus used. So he was by, I guess you would say trilingual. He was able to speak in the language, the common languages of the day. What about number six? The only double miracle that Jesus ever did was Mark 8, 25 to, 22 to 25, when a blind man was brought to him in Jericho. He led him outside the city and he put his fingers on his eyes and he asked him, what did he see? And he said, I see men as trees walking. Jesus healed, touched him again and he was completely healed. That's bothered some people. Why, did he, why couldn't he get it right the first time? It seems to be there are different um, explanations of it. But the, most, the one that I think has the most validity is that the first miracle healed his eyes, the physical organs of whatever there was wrong with them, but the second one adjusted his mind to be, be able to interpret what he was seeing. So here's someone who's not used to, to seeing men, trees, and so he would need to 
to be able to interpret the visual images that are coming his way. Jesus adjusted his eyes, then adjusted his recognition of the things that his eyes were seeing. Doesn't best say it, though, isn't it? Number seven. What about this one? John the Baptist, as great a man as he was, never worked a miracle. That's uh, coming up in the next one. I got ahead of myself. This one is the relationship that John had with Jesus. He was his older cousin. It says in Luke one thirty six that Mary and Elizabeth were cousins. Therefore, Jesus and John would have been uh, cousins, second cousins. Now, why that's interesting, at least one thing that's interesting about that, is that you get the impression when John introduces Jesus to the world in John one thirty six, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. You get the impression that's the first time he's ever seen him. You know, there's, there's no backstory to that in John, but they grew up together. They were related to each other. He had known him all of his life. And then when he introduced him to the world, of course, he was letting others know what he knew, how long he had known that he was the Son of God. That, that's something to be discussed, but he certainly knew who Jesus was, and at some time he knew that he was not an, a regular person. Number eight, this is an interesting, just a curiosity really, but Jesus never said grace while on earth. That is, he never used the word grace in any recorded speech or conversation. Um, he talked about grace. He taught grace. He showed grace. He lived grace. There's a whole section of his parables that are called the grace parables, for instance. But there's no record where he ever used that word while on earth. Now, he did use it from heaven in 2 Corinthians 12.9 when he told Paul, My grace is sufficient for thee. But he never used it on earth. John 10.41, John never worked a miracle, performed a miracle. Jesus did, the apostles did, but John did not. Number 10, the book of John shows the heart of Jesus more than the others. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels um, because you see from the same perspective. They're 80% the same, 20% different. John is 80% different, 20% the same. So it's a lot different than the others. It's a supplemental gospel. But it also emphasizes Jesus' relationship to God. More than a hundred times in the 21 chapters of John, he refers to God as his Father. John 2.16, John 4.23, John 5.17, many other passages. What about number 11? The, the apostle or the disciple Thomas had a twin. He's called Didymus in John 11.16. Didymus means twin, so he had a twin. Some people think... Um, Bartholomew may have been his twin, or it may be somebody we don't, whose name we do not know, does, does not survive historically, so we do not know, but we do know he had a twin. John 12, or number 12, John 21, 7, Peter once fished naked. This is after the resurrection. You remember Peter said, I go fishing. The other disciples went with him, and then Jesus is on the bank cooking breakfast for them. Children, have you any meat? They called out, it is the Lord. And Peter put his coat on. He, he covered himself and jumped in the water and swam to the bank and to meet Jesus. Now, that's the opposite of what people today, they, they go to the, to the lake and they take all their clothes off, don't they? But, Jesus, but Peter, out there just with the men, he had taken, probably not all of his clothes, uh, probably referred just to strip down to his, to his loin, his undergarment, but then when he saw Jesus, he was not going to go see him in that. He was not going to go 
in mixed company like that, and so he put on his clothes, even though he was swimming to the bank. He put on his clothes to do that. The next one. There are there are a record there is a record of some Pharisees being converted. Nicodemus is a good example in John three, who came to Jesus at night, was a believer, was there at the resurrection. Uh, Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee, of the Pharisees was converted um, in the New Testament, Acts twenty three six. But there's no record of any Sadducee ever obeying the gospel. They're mentioned, Acts 4, verse 1, but it's always with an antagonistic attitude toward the gospel. There may have been converted Sadducees. The Bible does not record that anywhere. Now, the difference in the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees, Pharisees were ultra-conservative. They bound where the Bible didn't bind. Sadducees were ultra-liberal. They loosed where the Bible didn't loose. So at least the Pharisees had respect for the Word of God, although they took it too far. But the Sadducees did not believe in spirits, angels. They did not respect even the foundational doctrines of Scripture. That may have contributed to why they weren't converted. I don't know. That's speculation. But we do know there's no record of their conversion. Acts is the longest book in the New Testament. It also is one of only two books not to use the word love. You don't read the word love in the book of Acts. Second Peter is the only other book that doesn't have that word love in it. Acts 19, 19 and 20. The apostles sanctioned a book burning. Now that I've given some thought to, and you may have as well. We live in a, in a land where education is prized. Most of us will spend a number of years in classrooms at various levels, learning and growing intellectually. We appreciate libraries in our land. Some may have donated books or Monies to purchase books to the local library through the years. You may be a card carry member of several libraries. And so we think of someone burning a book as being a pagan, being someone who doesn't value education. So we might read that askance in Acts 19, but let's step back from this a moment and consider what was happening. You have about a million dollars worth of books being burned in, this, in Acts 19, 19 to 20. And someone might say they could have sold those books for a million dollars and sponsored a lot of mission work with that money, but they just burned it and went up in smoke. Why would they do that? Well, let's, let's ask this question. What were those books about? They were for the purpose of promoting paganism and the magical arts. If they had sold those books, what, was, what would have happened to the books? Well, they would have ended up in the equivalent of bookstores to be resold, to be reread, and to further those same con concepts that the gospel was trying to overcome. So here, you're you buy, if you had sold those and they had been used, they would have furthered, they would have further hindered the, the advance of the gospel. So they burned them, so at least nobody would be influenced with these. It would be much like in a war. Uh, I enjoy uh, Civil War history and like World War II history, some other histories, but those two I really enjoy reading about. And you know, in any war, but those two come to mind, examples where if the enemy lines are, are, are changing and you have a fort or an outpost, even a camp, and it's about to be overrun by the army, the, the enemy, what will they do? Will they 
the commander is going to say, everybody get everything you can carry and retreat to this point. But if they don't have time or personnel to carry all of the ammunition with them, what will they do, the last person out before they leave? They'll blow it up. They'll burn it. Because they don't want those bullets to be fired again to kill the wrong people. Well, that's the same thing you have here in Acts 19, 19 and 20. The next one, number 16, and there are only 20 of these, Romans 1, 26 and 27. This is one that really needs to be emphasized in our generation, isn't it? We're told constantly that people are just born homosexuals, or either born straight or gay, and there's nothing they can do about it. But what does the Bible say about that? Now, I know probably all have this passage marked in your Bible, but if you do not, this would be a good passage to know what it is because we need to be teaching it to our children, our grandchildren, and as we have opportunity in our culture. The Bible says that people are not born homosexual. That is against nature. Read this with me or listen as I read it. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, even for even their women to change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that, that recompense of their error which was meat. Many people do not know that's in the Bible, but they need to read it again. Number 17, uh, 1 Corinthians 7 deals with the marriage relationship. The purpose uh, the marriage relationship was not only for procreation, that is, to have children, but also for recreation, to bind the union together. You see that also in the Old Testament, Genesis 26, 8, and Exodus 21, 10 speaks, among other things, of the duty of marriage. Uh, if a man took a wife, he was supposed to provide for her physically, that is, as far as clothes and food, but also the physical relationship was a part of that contract of marriage, Old Testament and New Testament. 1 Corinthians 11, 14 and 15, it's a shame for a man to have long hair. It's a glory for women to have long hair. Number 19, did you know if you're a Christian this afternoon that your name is written in heaven? Now, your name may be written in a lot of places. It may even be carved in stone on some building that you've donated to an academic institution one day it will be written on a tombstone somewhere, but the best place to have your name written is nowhere on earth, but it is in heaven, in God's book. You know, W, in this generation, whatever your last name is, to be able to run your finger down in that book of life and see your name written there. That's the greatest place to have a name written. And then as we close, I'll just mention this. Sometimes I do a whole sermon on this one. I'll just mention it. The New Testament is so arranged that it will take a person from sinner to heaven if you just read it and understand it. I preached a lot of years before I ever discovered this. Uh, it may be Mark knew this in preachers. They probably taught us this in preacher training, but I didn't, I didn't learn it until later. Did you know that a person who picks up the New Testament has a good heart, wants to know what God wants him to do, and he begins reading in Matthew... And he reads through Revelation. He's going through, going through a natural process. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are for the purpose of causing belief. What does a sinner first need to do in order to go to heaven? He needs to believe in Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus is king. Jesus 
is a servant of man. Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of God. Those four truths are emphasized in those four books. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the living God. John 20, 30, and 31. Well, what does a person who believes need to do next? He needs to be baptized in water for the forgiveness of sins. When you finish the book of John, what's the next book you read? The book of Acts. What's it about? Obeying the Gospel. You don't even get past Acts chapter 2 when they ask, what shall we do, men and brethren? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Acts is there, among other reasons, to show a person how to obey the Gospel. Here's a sinner who now believes in Jesus. He has now been baptized for remission of sins. What does he need to know next? How to worship God acceptably, how to live the Christian life. What's the next book he comes to? Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. What are those books about? How to live the Christian life, how to worship God acceptably. Here's a person who's done that. He's worshiped God all these years. He or she's lived a life faithful to God. Now he's gray, turned gray and stooped and approaching the last years of life. What does he or she need next? Some assurance about what's in the net, what comes after this life. What's the last book you come to? The book of Revelation. What's it about? Johnny Ramsey used to say, the book of Revelation, and he, he loved to preach Revelation. He, he said, it's about if you overcome, you get to come over and live with me forever. That's what Revelation's about, going to heaven. It assures us that this world is not all there is. And so this afternoon as we close this study, I, w- I wonder where you are in the New Testament. If you had to say, well, I've gotten this far as far as my response to God, are you still in the Gospels, Gospel accounts? Are you learning to believe in Jesus? No, you say, I'm past that. I already believe in Jesus, the Son of God. May I ask you, have you gotten to the book of Acts yet? Have you ever been baptized in water for the forgiveness of your sins? Or have you stopped at John? You know, we could assist you. We would love to assist you in your obedience to the Gospel. You could do exactly today what they did in the New Testament times to become a Christian. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. You could become a Christian the same way they did. You say, well, I've been baptized. Are you living the Christian life? Are you worshiping God faithfully? Are you in the epistle sage? If you haven't been faithful... You need to respond and be faithful from this day forward the rest of your life to give God all your remaining days and certainly give Him your heart which then will give Him everything that you have. If you haven't been doing that and you say, I want to be revived, I want this gospel meeting to change my life, why don't you come forward and let us pray with you and for you and God will change your life. Are you nearing the end? You know, every gospel meeting that you have, somebody's not in attendance that attended the last one. Sometimes you get invited back to gospel meetings and you'll say, Where was, um, what, what was the name of that real faithful lady that sat over here? Well, we had our funeral last year. Whose funeral is going to be next? Who knows? It's not only the old who die, sometimes the young die. But whenever that end comes to the biography, the autobiography that you're writing, with your daily decisions, make sure it ends with a happy story that you're going to go to the place where God has prepared for you. Revelation's written to say to you, don't be afraid of death. It's, it's a good thing for a Christian to cross over and to be with God forever. Now, if you need that assurance, could we assist you? 
We'll baptize you into Christ based on your confession of faith, turning from sin and repentance. We'll pray with you for you. The brethren here will continue to encourage you as much as you need from this day forward. If you'll let us know that, we, that you need it, you will start again. Connor's going to lead us in our song. Would you, would you come if you need to while we stand and while we sing?